and that I am the more delighted at the fact in that, as you know, I had just settled into a new lodging, a circumstance only too apt to keep one from sleeping. This morning, too, I rose, joyous and full of love, at Cockrow. How good seemed everything at that hour, my darling. When I opened my window I could see the sun shining and hear the birds singing and smell the air laden with scents of spring. In short, all nature was awakening to life again. Everything was in consonance with my mood. Everything seemed fair and spring-like. Moreover, I had a fancy that I should fare well today. But my whole thoughts were bent upon you. Surely, thought I, we mortals who dwell in pain and sorrow— might with reason envy the birds of heaven, which know not either. And my other thoughts were similar to these. In short, I gave myself up to fantastic comparisons. A little book which I have says the same kind of thing in a variety of ways. For instance, it says that one may have many, many fancies, my Barbara, that as soon as the spring comes, one's thoughts become uniformly pleasant and sportive and witty, for the reason that, at that season, the mind inclines readily to tenderness, and the world takes on a more roseate hue. From that little book of mine I have called the following passage, and written it down for you to see. In particular does the author express a longing similar to my own, where he writes, why am I not a bird free to seek its quest? And he has written much else, God bless him. But tell me, my love, where did you go for your walk this morning? Even before I had started for the office, you had taken flight from your room and passed through the courtyard, yes, looking as vernal-like as a bird in spring. What rapture it gave me to see you! Ah, little Barbara! Little Barbara, you must never give way to grief, for tears are of no avail, nor sorrow. I know this well. I know it of my own experience. So do you rest quietly until you have a little regained your health? But how is our good Fedora? What a kind heart she has. You write she is now living with you, and that you are satisfied with what she does. True, you say that she is inclined to grumble, but do not mind that, Barbara. God bless her, for she is an excellent soul. But what sort of abode have I lighted upon, Barbara Alexeyevna? What sort of tenements do you think is this? Formerly, as you know, I used to live in absolute stillness, so much so that if a fly took wing it could plainly be heard buzzing. Here, however, all is turmoil and shouting and clatter. The plan of the tenements you know already. Imagine a long corridor, quite dark, and by no means clean. To the right, a dead wall, and to the left, a row of doors stretching as far as the line of rooms extends. These rooms are tenanted by different people, by one by two or by three lodgers, as the case may be. But in this arrangement there is no sort of system, and the place is a perfect Noah's Ark. Most of the lodgers are respectable, educated, and even bookish people. In particular they include a chinovnik, 
one of the literary staff in some government department, who is so well-read that he can expound Homer or any other author. In fact, anything. Such a man of talent is he. Also, there are a couple of officers, forever playing cards, a midshipman, and an English tutor. But to amuse you, dearest, let me describe these people more categorically in my next letter, and tell you in detail about their lives. As for our landlady, she is a dirty little old woman, who always walks about in a dressing gown and slippers, and never ceases to shout at Teresa. I myself live in the kitchen, or rather, in a small room which forms part of the kitchen. The latter is a very large, bright, clean, cheerful apartment with three windows in it and a partition wall which, running outwards from the front wall, makes a sort of little den, a sort of extra room for myself. Everything in this den is comfortable and convenient, and I have, as I say, a window to myself. So much for a description of my dwelling place. Do not think, dearest, that in all this there is any hidden intention. The fact that I live in the kitchen merely means that I live behind the partition wall in that apartment, that I live quite alone, and spend my time in a quiet fashion compounded of trifles. For furniture I have provided myself with a bed, a table, a chest of drawers, and two small chairs. Also I have suspended an icon— True, better rooms may exist in the world than this, much better rooms, yet comfort is the chief thing. In fact, I have made all my arrangements for comfort's sake alone. So do not for a moment imagine that I had any other end in view, and since your window happens to be just opposite to mine, and since the courtyard between us is narrow, and I can see you as you pass— why, the result is that this miserable wretch will be able to live at once more happily and with less outlay. The dearest room in this house costs with board thirty-five roubles, more than my purse could well afford, whereas my room costs only twenty-four, though formerly I used to pay thirty, and so had to deny myself many things. I could drink tea, but seldom and never could indulge in tea and sugar, as I do now. But somehow I do not like having to go without tea, for everyone else here is respectable, and the fact makes me ashamed. After all, one drinks tea largely to please one's fellow men, Barbara, and to give oneself tone and an air of gentility. Though of myself I care little about such things, for I am not a man of the finicking sort. Yet think you that, when all things needful, boots and the rest have been paid for, much will remain? Yet I ought not to grumble at my salary. I am quite satisfied with it. It is sufficient. It has sufficed me now for some years, and, in addition, I receive certain gratuities. Well, good-bye, my darling. I have bought you two little pots of geraniums, quite cheap little pots, too, as a present. Perhaps you would also like some mignonette. Mignonette it shall be, if only you will write to inform me of everything in detail. Also, do not misunderstand the fact that I have taken this room, my dearest. 
convenience, and nothing else has made me do so. The snugness of the place has caught my fancy. Also, I shall be able to save money here, and to hoard it against the future. Already I have saved a little money as a beginning. Nor must you despise me, because I am such an insignificant old fellow that a fly could break me with its wing. True, I am not a swashbuckler, but perhaps there may also abide in me the spirit which should pertain to every man who is at once resigned and sure of himself. Goodbye, then, again, my angel. I have now covered close upon a whole two sheets of note-paper, though I ought long ago to have been starting for the office. I kiss your hands, and remain ever your devoted slave, your faithful friend, Makar Dievushkin. P.S. One thing I beg of you above all things, and that is that you will answer this letter as fully as possible. With the letter I send you a packet of bonbons. Eat them for your health's sake, nor, for the love of God, feel any uneasiness about me. Once more, dearest one, goodbye. April 8th. My beloved Makar Alexeyevich, do you know I must quarrel with you? Yes, good Makar Alexeyevich, I really cannot accept your presence, for I know what they must have cost you. I know to what privations and self-denial they must have led. How many times have I not told you that I stand in need of nothing, of absolutely nothing, as well as that I shall never be in a position to recompense you for all the kindly acts with which you have loaded me? Why, for instance, have you sent me geraniums, a little spring?